0: Strange Studies of Strange Stories Aunt Amy was out on the front porch, rocking back and forth in the high-backed chair and fanning herself when Bill Soames rode his bicycle up the road and stopped in front of the house. Perspiring under the afternoon sun, Bill lifted the box of groceries out of the basket over the front wheel of the bike and came up the front walk. Little Anthony was sitting on the lawn playing with a rat. He had caught the rat down in the basement. He had made it think that it smelled cheese, the most rich-smelling and crumbly delicious cheese a rat had ever thought it smelled, and it came out of its hole. And now Anthony had a hold of it with his mind and was making it do tricks. When the rat saw Bill Soames coming, it tried to run, but Anthony thought at it and it turned a flip-flop on the grass and lay trembling, its eyes gleaming in small black terror.
1: I'm certainly terrified right now. Chris, who is that reader? That reader is Albert Lackey. Hey, your son,
2: the legend. He is. You know, he's got a YouTube page called Albert is Awesome, where he does stop motion videos with Legos, (laughs) and he's... Got some other crazy stuff that he's done, like this review of uh, Dunkin' Donuts versus a Madison-based one.
1: Yes, he did that while you guys were visiting last month. Made that video right before my very eyes. Yeah. Between Dunkin' Donuts and the Greenbush Bakery here in Madison, Mm -hmm. your other son, Finney, conducted the taste test. Yeah. He was the charming judge, and, (laughs) and Albie filmed him. And at the end of the video that he cut together, Greenbush Bakery won, and it ended with the Dunkin' Donuts bag getting kicked in slow motion (laughs) with this loud explosion sound. It was incredible. A big explosion like I like my movies to end. What what are their ages?
2: Albert's 11 and Finian's 9.
1: I think it's important to mention these things so we can reassure our listeners that there are good kids out there (laughs) before we veer into the frightening children of today's story. And I believe stories we'll be doing most of the month. You're joining us here at Strange Studies and Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
2: And I'm Chris Lackey. Today's story is called It's a Good Life, and it's by Jerome Bixby.
1: This is our one-year anniversary of the new show, when we officially switched the name to Strange oh, Studies wow. of Strange Stories from the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. It was July. We kicked it off last year with The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. So it seemed like a good time to revisit The Twilight Zone. And this story was adapted for that show in 1961. It was the eighth episode of the third season. And it's one of the more famous episodes of the original series. A a really faithful adaptation of this story with some very interesting differences, which we'll touch on as we go. Uh, A very young Cloris Leachman is in that episode. All right. So young that we were debating whether it was her or not. But it is. Billy Moomin plays the child. And some may know that actor. He played Will Robinson from Lost in Space. Right. right. Uh, It's a great bit of television. And this is the story it's based on, which turns out to also be a fantastic piece of writing. What do we know about this author, Jerome Bixby? This is our first time covering his work. Drexel Jerome Lewis Bixby,
2: four names, was born in Los Angeles in 1923. Somebody was actually born
1: in Los Angeles? (laughs) They're out there. In fact... I think it was just within the last five years or last decade that it has finally tipped over 50% of Californians that are native there, finally. Oh, wow. But that tells you how odd that is. Yeah. Most people are from somewhere else. Now,
2: I couldn't find it much about his early life just when he started working, which was as an editor for Jungle Stories and Action Stories in 1949, and then he did Planet Stories in
1: 1950. I <laughs> sense a theme here. He then moved on to Punching Stories and Dog Stories. Short-lived stint when they merged as dog-punching stories. Oh, no. Very short-lived.
2: He's best known as a writer on the original series of Star Trek. He wrote one of my all-time favorite episodes, Mirror, Mirror.
1: That's with the evil Kirk, right?
2: Well, no. You're thinking of Enemy Within. This has got evil Spock. This is where they go, (laughs) good Kirk, good McCoy, Uh good Uhura, and good Scotty get transported to the mirror universe where the Federation isn't the Federation, it's it's this evil, fascist, uh-huh. you know, control like and everybody's stabbing each other in the back. It's really like a pirate ship more than it is the Federation ship. Okay. And it's just some great performances. Nichelle Nichols like knocks it out of the park. That's like one of the best ones with her in there. It's classic. It's great.
1: Does Spock have a goatee? Is that how we know? He does. That is correct, yes. But in the other one, Kirk has eyeliner. That's how you know it's evil Kirk. He does, yes, that's right.
2: He also wrote Fantastic Voyage, which is another sci-fi classic. And that movie was released in 1966. And then he had kind of a bit of a gulf for a while. The last thing that he worked on was a movie called Man from Earth, which was released in 2007.
1: Wow, pretty recent. Well, I was wondering earlier what kind of title might be published in Planet Stories, and I guess that's it, (laughs) Man from Earth.
2: Now, Bixby was working on this story in the 1960s, but finally finished it on his deathbed in April of 1998. And the movie is super low budget. Well,
1: that's really cool. Speaking of independent films, he wrote the script for It! The Terror from Beyond Space, independently produced in 1958. Mm. And that movie I've heard of because it inspired Dan O'Bannon's script for Alien. Oh, Apparently it has yes. some of the same elements.
2: Well, this story was originally written in 1953, then adapted for The Twilight Zone, and then again later adapted for Twilight Zone the movie in 1983, and then finally in The Simpsons in 1991, Trios of Terror 2
1: which is how a lot of people know it actually. Mm -hmm. I I watched the original Twilight Zone episode from 61 over the weekend with Heather and man, it still really works as effective horror. It's very Mm -hmm. tense, I recommend it. This story was selected by the science fiction writers of America for the science fiction hall of fame volume one as one of the 20 best short stories in science fiction published prior to the Nebula Award. We've mentioned this collection before. Because we've also covered Mimsy Were the Borough Groves on Mm -hmm. this show and Arena (laughs) by Frederick Brown. And then on HB Podcraft, we did Nightfall by Asimov and Fondly Fahrenheit by Alfred Bester. So all top-notch stories. This is in very esteemed company. Let's dive into it.
2: Our story begins with a man, Bill Soames, delivering groceries to a house. And he could see little Anthony playing with a rat using some kind of mind control and maybe telekinesis, Bill is terrified of this kid and just recites multiplication to himself. And this keeps Anthony from reading his mind and knowing that he's terrified of this kid.
1: This is a cool element of the story that's not really in the adaptation. This idea of having to force yourself to think of something mundane because an entity is reading your thoughts. That comes up a lot in fiction. I was thinking of Stephen King's It. Might even be in the Tommyknockers and um, A Wrinkle in Time, this happens. So I looked it up to see what the trope might be called, and TV Tropes calls it Psychic Static, mm. which I think is a pretty good name for it. Anyway, Bill Soames is delivering groceries and trying to think. Is, keep his thoughts boring, um, mm. because Anthony can read minds. He's also controlling this terrified animal, so we, we just don't know what the scope of his powers are yet, but no. they're mighty.
2: We find out that sometimes Anthony isn't all bad. That is, if he liked you, he might try and help you in his way. And that could be pretty horrible. And if he didn't like you, well, that could be worse. There's a lot of vague danger in the story, which really, I think, adds to the horror of it. Because you don't know exactly what Anthony's doing. I mean, we give a few examples in the story, but there's lots of just implied horrible things that have happened in the past.
1: In the TV adaptation for Twilight Zone, it starts very much the same way, Bill peddling up. But the kid, Anthony, says, I made a gopher with three heads, look! And you only see him holding the tail. You don't see the actual animal. Mm. You just get Bill's reaction to it. Then Anthony kills the animal and he has reaction to that. I know it's a trope in and of itself for me to say not showing things is more effective. But in this case, it really is. It is. It's so creepy. That comes through in the story as well. He's mind controlling this rat. There's also this idea that a lot of things going wrong, they come from him trying to help. In the TV adaptation, he's a little more malevolent. And I really love this idea that it's somebody trying to be helpful, but without a full understanding of the world or the effects of his actions. And the examples that it gives, but doesn't specify, it says he might take a notion to do something about it, like curing your wife's sick headaches or your kid's mumps or getting your old milk cow back on schedule or fixing the privy. And we know those things are all referenced because they went horribly wrong somehow. So, yeah. like, what happened? Yeah, Did he, like, remove the wife's head in order to stop the oh, headaches? God. I think it's things like that, We but yeah. we don't know.
2: And, of course, that's the great thing about it, is that it allows you to do the work and mm-hmm. come up with really messed up things.
1: Which I did.
2: You did. Now, Bill is delivering <laughs> the groceries to Miss Amy Fremont, that's Anthony's aunt. Bill says hi to her, and she says, oh, it's a hot day, and this flips bill out and he violently shakes his head no no over and over again and he tells her oh don't say that miss amy it's fine just fine a real good day and it's hard reading the story and not thinking about the twilight zone episode in the movie and the TV episode, everybody's just so manic and freaking out trying to keep this kid happy.
1: And they really play the heat, too. Everybody's just so sweaty on top of being desperate. There's one way in which having seen the episode first actually makes the story better, though. And, and let's talk about that at the end. Oh, okay. Aunt Amy isn't quite right anymore. Otherwise, she wouldn't be complaining about the heat says about a year ago anthony had gotten mad at her because she told him he shouldn't have turned the cat into a cat rug and although he had always obeyed her more than anyone else which was hardly at all this time he'd snapped at her with his mind and that had been the end of amy fremont's bright eyes and the end of amy fremont as everyone had known her
2: so what happened to her they don't mean that she's blind she doesn't seem to be blind in the story are her eyes gone or is it just that the fire in her soul has been diminished
1: It feels like she got lobotomized. Like, that's what it seems like. Her personality changed. She got more placid and kind of thoughtless. I don't know. But there is something like that in the 80s one where his sister talks too much, so he removed her mouth. Yeah. Which is pretty disturbing. Yeah. It says
2: here, someday Anthony might undo what he'd done to Aunt Amy. Anthony's mom and pop hoped he would when he was older and maybe sorry, if it was possible, that is, because Aunt Amy had changed a lot. And besides, now Anthony wouldn't obey anyone. At this point in the story, we see that Anthony is making the rat eat itself.
1: Kind of mentally ordering it to do it. It had already devoured its tail, it says, or at least chewed it off. For Anthony had made it bite faster than it could swallow. And little pink and red furry pieces lay around it on the green grass. Now the rat was having trouble reaching its hindquarters. Some very visceral horror. Again, not not in the adaptation. It's a level of cruelty that couldn't have been depicted on television. Certainly not in 1961.
2: It's cool in the story because they are vague about so many things, but then they do get specific in a couple instances yeah. so that you're able to kind of work in that milieu.
1: That's important because it tells you Anthony's doing this and he doesn't find it odd or cruel. Mm, nope. So that gives you a sense of where we are in terms of what he might do. It's this really frightening.
2: <laughs> now, strangely... Amy calls out Bill's mumbling to himself, saying, oh, you don't have to mumble. Don't worry. Anthony won't hurt you. He likes you. And Anthony looked across the lawn at the grocery man, a bright, wet, purple gaze. And the purple gaze is used often in the story to represent the use of Anthony's power. Now, Bill walks off thinking, accidentally, I have to get out of here. As he gets on his bike, of course, Anthony notices Bill's thoughts. Fortunately, he was in a good mood today. And besides, he liked Bill Soames, or at least didn't dislike him at least today. So Anthony gives the bike a little push, which shoots Bill off down the road at an insane speed on his bike, and he's screaming all the way.
1: It says pedaling with superhuman speed, or rather appearing to because in reality, the bicycle was pedaling him. So finally, an example of Anthony helping.
2: So Anthony sees that the rat is dead. It ate half of its own stomach. God. Billy thinks it into a grave out deep in the cornfield, and is like, oh. So they talk about the cornfield in the movie... And you don't really know what the cornfield is. Yeah. It's because there's graves on the cornfield.
1: He just sends things and people to the cornfield if he doesn't like them. And that's really all you know about it from those adaptations, both of them. Yeah. In here, we get a little backstory. It says, his father had once said, smiling, that he might do that with the things he killed. So this was a, a suggestion from his father who still acted yeah. happy when he was giving this suggestion to his son, <laughs> which is so macabre.
2: <laughs> we cut to Amy and Anthony's mother taking out the groceries. There seems to be some kind of limit on objects in this place. The story mentions that the box that the groceries came in is old and worn and one of the last ones left.
1: We all get sick of the post-apocalyptic stuff, but this is a really strange take on it. You know, the kid has ultimate power, but he's too young to know what people might really need or not thoughtful enough to produce a surplus of anything like as simple as boxes. He just wouldn't spend time doing that. Mm -hmm. So anything they get comes from the mind of a child. Grown up things made cooperatively are just gone in this world.
2: Amy tells her sister that Bill brought the groceries, and she says, good.
1: Everybody in Peaksville always said, oh, fine, or good, or say, that's swell, when almost everything happened or was mentioned, even unhappy things like accidents or even deaths. They always say good, because if they didn't try to cover up how they really felt, Anthony might overhear with his mind, and then nobody knew what might happen. Like the time Mrs. Kent's husband, Sam, had come walking back from the graveyard because Anthony liked Mrs. Kent and had heard her mourning.
2: What a horror show. And, man, I'm just surprised anybody's still around.
1: That left me wondering. So that was a zombie that is being referenced there. Yeah. The dead, Mr. Kent, came home. Does the zombie just live with Mrs. Kent now?
2: I don't know. Is there
1: just a zombie around that they have to accept as a friend and neighbor? I don't know. (laughs) They don't go
2: into details about it. Amy reminds mom that it's television night amy fans herself and says she wishes it wasn't so hot and then mom just yells at her don't wish for anything mom tries to save it by saying oh the weather's fine and then amy quickly agrees it's a wonderful day i wouldn't want to change it for the world they begin discussing dan hollis's surprise birthday party as it is going to be part of tv
1: night they're trying to get on with their lives in some fashion within these insane circumstances yeah you know i would be so frozen with indecision about everything What's going to make this omnipotent kid mad? There's like a whole corner of the internet dedicated to strange things making children mad. It's a Saturday morning. My toddler has no responsibilities. There's fresh snow on the ground outside, the smell of fresh cinnamon toast in the air, new cartoons on the TV. Yet he is seething with rage. And it's always because of something crazy. The placemat was blue or he couldn't hold the jar of pickles for more than five minutes. And now he's furious. And this is who is in power. And it's such a contrast to the adult world where all the most powerful people are well-adjusted, thoughtful, <laughs> educated people with good impulse control who don't demand unwavering field tea. You know, now that I think about it, I, there might be something else going on with this story. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. They see Anthony
2: walk out into the cornfield and he likes it there. He likes the smell of the plants. He likes it so much that he's made a little grotto out there with a pool. And he likes animals, not rats, though, because Aunt Amy doesn't like them, so he doesn't either. So he makes this environment that is pleasing to animals so that they come and they enjoy it. And he, he likes to read their thoughts when they're happy. It's like he can share their feelings with them. He likes to help them. He likes to feel their simple gratification. Now, a long, furry creature comes slinking around looking for another animal to eat, and Anthony doesn't like that. So he kills that thing immediately and sends it off because it reminds him of thoughts outside of the grove
1: a long time ago some of the people outside had thought that way about him and one night they'd hidden and waited for him to come back from the grove and he'd just thought them all into the cornfield since then the rest of the people hadn't thought that way at least very clearly now their thoughts were all mixed up and confusing whenever they thought about him or near him so he didn't pay much attention he liked to help them too sometimes but it wasn't simple or very gratifying either they never thought happy thoughts when he did just the jumble so he spent more time out here You know, while we were watching the show, Heather kept saying, God, they got to just rush this kid. You know, (laughs) they got to take that kid out altogether. He can't think about he can't read all their thoughts at once. I didn't remember how it ended. So Uh I thought, well, maybe that would happen. And I think it was because in that 80s one, it does have somewhat of a happy ending. Like he finds a guide. And so that was impressed upon me. It's good to see that in this story, that question is addressed. They, They did try to do that at some point in the past and it did not work out. They went right to the cornfield.
2: All of them yep. immediately, instantly. Yeah, it's pretty mm-hmm. horrific. Now, after he gets bored, he decides he doesn't want to walk back to the house, so he just wheels himself back into the cellar. He likes the smell down there, and he tricks another rat into coming out. He plays with it for a while, and then he thinks that out into the cornfield.
1: Then he messes around with a spider. It says he drove fruit flies into the web until the spider was frantic, trying to wind them all up. The spider liked flies, and its thoughts were stronger than theirs, so he did it. There was something bad in the way it liked flies, but it wasn't clear, and besides, Aunt Amy hated flies too. It's so creepy how he's trying to work out what's good and what's bad Mm -hmm. because every whim of his is indulged, so he has no idea what he should or shouldn't be doing. Per some of our recent discussions, here's where something like a religion might come in handy you know maybe maybe dr moreau was on to something
2: (laughs) but obviously this kid has never felt any kind of punishment or shame or disapproval or any of that stuff because if somebody sending him some thoughts he doesn't like he just gets rid of them now he blinks himself up to the attic and goes to sleep looking forward to television night anthony's dad comes back from the slaughterhouse and says he didn't like the job but every man had his turn so this is a town of 49 people in it. Because we find out soon that it's in enclosed space, everybody's got to do the crap jobs.
1: Right. They they do all the crap jobs in rotation, just like they give each other things that they already own in rotation in order mm-hmm. to create some kind of civilization.
2: So mommy asked dad if he was able to keep the surprise, and he says that Dan doesn't know. And they found a great gift for him. It's a record that Thelma Dunn found up in her attic. It's Perry Como singing You Are My Sunshine, which is creepy. I, th- th- I mean, that song, it's like a serial killer would play it as he was preparing to cut you up in little pieces. You know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. <laughs> they go into some description about how people have to swap items because there are no new items. Yeah. All the food that they have is what they had left over canned food and only what they can grow.
1: Over the course of the story, you start to understand that their world is really cut off. In space. However, in the Twilight Zone episode, it's introduced right away. Rod Sterling basically tells you the town exists independently from the rest of the world. Maybe the rest of the world was destroyed. Maybe their town is an island in space. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. Now, in the remake, which Richard Matheson wrote, the family is living within the real world. I think Kathleen Quinlan plays maybe a teacher, but she's traveling. And she accidentally hits Anthony while he's riding his bike with her car. She takes him home and she finds that the family's all under his sway. So that's an interesting choice, too, in a way a riff on the story because it put so much importance on them keeping him happy because he still might wipe out the rest of the world oh, geez. that doesn't know about him.
2: Anthony's whims about the weather made it so that people never knew what crops would come up or what shape they'd be in if they did. All they could do was plant a lot and always enough of something came up any one season to live on. Just once there had been a grain surplus. Tons of it had been hauled to the edge of Peaksville and dumped off into the nothingness. Otherwise, nobody could have breathed when it started to spoil. So there's this void around the whole village, this yeah. kind of nothingness. And that's why at the top of the story, when they talked about the hot sun, the word sun is put in quotes. So it might not even really be the sun.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, I do. I do like this aspect of it a lot.
2: It's rad the story is awesome so this record is going to be a real surprise to dan because it was found in an attic and he doesn't even know it exists amy remarks that it will be sad when they run out of new things and everyone tries to cover up what she just said and amy Mm -hmm. realizes what she's done and since anthony did stuff to her she's been like we said a bit off and doesn't always catch when she slips but this time she does and she's terrified
1: yeah you would think she's now been spared the horror of this since she's been lobotomized but No. No. (laughs) She still remembers a little bit. Uh Uh-oh.
2: Around 8 p.m., people begin to arrive. John and Mary Sipich. John is in a suit cleaned up from working hard on McIntyre's pasture. McIntyre once tried to get Anthony to make stuff for the village
1: that they needed. Since then, he felt that what had happened to the whole Terrence family and Joe Kinney was his fault. And he worked hard trying to make it up to the rest of them. And since then, no one had tried to get Anthony to do anything. So we Ooh. don't know what happened. <laughs> we Somehow don't. that had hurt a bunch of people, a whole family and a person we don't know. So yeah, don't ask wow. him for anything at all.
2: <laughs> the next to arrive are the Smiths and then the Dunns, who live only a few yards away from the nothingness. The Riley show up next. Pat Riley plays piano and gets started right away. They don't sing anymore because Anthony likes music, but he does not like singing.
1: The one time somebody had started to sing, Anthony had looked over from the top of the piano and done something that made everybody afraid of singing from then on. (laughs) Later, they decided that the piano was what Anthony had heard first, before anybody had ever tried to sing, and so now everything else added to it didn't sound right and distracted him from his pleasure.
2: Now by 8.30, everyone is there except for the 17 children of the village and Mrs. Soames, who watches over them.
1: The children of Peaksville were never, never allowed near the Fremont house, not since little Fred Smith had tried to play with Anthony on a dare. The younger children weren't even told about Anthony. The others had mostly forgotten about him or were told that he was a nice, nice goblin, but they must never go near him. Mm. I thought, man, you better hope he likes being called a goblin. (laughs) But there is some sort of normal world on, on the edges. They're trying to keep the kids away from this.
2: Now, Dan and Ethel Hollis come later since it's a surprise party for Dan he is surprised and seems really happy about the whole thing he gets a few gifts from people and is brought to tears by this pericomo record
1: by receiving it but yes pericomo's a singer so he's not putting it on the record player
2: he also gets a pipe as one of his gifts and it mentions that tobacco is really hard to get in the village they try to grow it once but it's tricky so they only have the small stash around
1: same with booze it's running out they're trying to distill their own but it's not working out great They only have a few bottles of the good stuff. And Dan is actually sampling the supply a little hard since it's his birthday. Mm
2: -hmm. Dan asks if they could put on the record just the first bit with no singing. But people shut that down real fast. (laughs) They're like, we don't know exactly when the singing starts. So, no. After dinner, they chat a little bit before television.
1: It says, Anthony liked television night. He had done only two or three awful things on television night in the whole past year. Oh, God. Mom puts some brandy on the table. Again, not much alcohol left. But what is left, Dan drinks. And he's not one of these obvious drunks. So nobody notices that he's had too much until it's too late. Yeah.
2: Dan drops the record. It falls, but it doesn't break. And he says, oh, Christ. And then everybody just stops. Pat stops Uh, playing the piano. Dead silent. Dad tells Pat, keep playing, keep playing. And Dan says, Christ again. I can't even play my record. And then he throws his glass of brandy against the wall. Sippich tells Dan to cut it out. Pat keeps playing, plays louder, hoping that it's going to drown all this out. But of course, it wouldn't stop Anthony from hearing it. Dan tells Pat, don't play that song. Play happy birthday. The Dan starts singing, happy birthday to me. Happy birthday. Play it, play it. <laughs> Pat keeps playing the song Anthony likes because he's terrified. Uh-huh. Dan looks at mom and dad and says, you had him. Tears gleamed on his cheeks as the candlelight caught them. You had to go and have him. And then it finally happens.
0: Anthony came into the room. Pat stopped playing. He froze. Everybody froze. The breeze rippled the curtains. Ethel Hollis couldn't even try to scream. She had fainted. Dunn's voice vaulted into silence. His eyes widened. He put both hands out in front of him, the empty glass in one, the record in the other. He hiccuped and said, No. Bad man, Anthony said, and thought Dan Hollis into something like nothing anyone would have believed possible. Then he thought the thing into a grave deep, deep deep in the cornfield. The glass and the record thumped on the rug. Neither broke. Anthony's purple gaze went around the room. Some of the people began mumbling. They all tried to smile. The sound of mumbling filled the room. Oh, it's a very good thing, said John Sipich. A good thing, said Anthony's father, smiling. He had more practice in smiling than most of them. A wonderful thing.
2: Oh, what he says, into a thing? He teleported him into a thing? And then the thought, the thing into a deep grave. Is it like, did he put him inside of another creature and then?
1: Oh, well, it just says he thought him into something. So I think that means the same as like turned him into something. Oh, right. Like nothing anyone would have believed possible. So it's a Lovecraftian touch. It's something unnameable, indescribable. And then took it away from everybody and put it in the cornfield.
2: So after that crazy murder... (laughs) Anthony climbs up on the piano and Pat just continues playing for two hours.
1: It's that horrible moment when you're playing with a toddler, maybe some kind of peekaboo. Maybe it's a chase them around in a circle thing and you realize, oh, oh, this isn't going to end. Like if I don't keep doing this repetitive thing, kids can freak out. I'm kind of trapped. Yeah. (laughs) After that, they watch TV.
2: They never have to actually turn it on because it doesn't work. There is no electricity in
1: Peaksville. They just sat silently and watched the twisting, writhing shapes on the screen and listened to the sounds that came out of the speaker. And none of them had any idea of what it was all about. They never did. It was always the same. Oh, God.
2: So, of course, they have to say nice things and think nice thoughts. It's fine. It's the best show we've ever seen, says John Sipich, while he and two other men hold down Ethel Hollis with their hands over her mouth so she won't start screaming again. Her husband obviously was just murdered in front of her. Mom looked out the window and she could see that the day was gone and the nothingness was unmistakable at night.
0: It did no good to wonder where they were. No good at all. Peaksville was just someplace, someplace away from the world. It was wherever it had been that day, three years ago, when Anthony crept from her womb and old Doc Bates, God rest him, had screamed and dropped him and tried to kill him and Anthony had whined and done the thing. He had taken the village someplace, or destroyed the world and left only the village, nobody knew which. It did no good to wonder about it. Nothing at all did any good except live as they must live. Must always, always live if Anthony would let them. These thoughts were dangerous, she thought. She began to mumble. The others started mumbling too. They had all been thinking evidently. The men on the couch whispered and whispered to Ethel Hollis and when they took their hands away she mumbled too. When Anthony sat on top of the set and made television they sat around and mumbled and watched the meaningless flickering shapes far into the night. Next day it snowed and killed off half the crops but it was a good day. Oh, my God.
1: And that's the end of the story.
0: Oh. oh,
1: oh, oh. Okay, now, in the show, this yeah. was the big surprise to me. Anthony's six years old in the show. Pretty horrific to yeah. have to live by the rules of a six-year-old. But here, and I didn't even realize it's the end of the story, he's three years old. Oh. I'm so used to the show, I was really surprised here at the end.
2: I didn't get that, yeah.
1: I just and, thought that he wigged out
2: three years ago. But no, it actually says he was born three years ago. And then all the stuff happened when he was born. And also... Maybe he's not human. We just assume that he's like a human child. But, you know, in the description, it says, Anthony had crept from her womb and old Doc Bates had screamed and dropped him and tried to kill him. He knew right away that there was something really wrong with this baby. Crept out right. of the womb. Oh, God. oh and, God. And
1: so, yeah, the child could have even appeared six years old or might have been in advanced intelligence already. Ooh, no. Well, the fact that it could read minds
2: must... It'll allow it to process information in ways that we can't.
1: Right. But when it describes, it reads the animal's minds and it kind of thinks about what they and that's part of the reason it doesn't understand subtlety at all, because we don't even know what this child's grip of language is. No. We don't get a you know, speech from Anthony, really. And and so it's trying to interpret people's feelings and thoughts just the same way it would in animals. And it, it's sort of you can see the difference in the TV programming, because in the adaptation, He's making these two claymation dinosaurs fight with mm-hmm. these really horrific lynchian sounds playing over it that's in the twilight zone one versus here it's just it's just like shapes and colors and weird sounds and they don't know what it is at all so mm. it's a real it's like a, a younger version of perception that makes this it's kind of a different take on it yeah i can sort of imagine what a six year old might want but not really a three-year-old and so oh. yes like you say it might not even be human but certainly this it being three makes it more alien yeah I don't know which is worse. And like I said, the <laughs> Kathleen Quinlan uh, 80s remake that Joe Dante directed has a, a more positive ending mm-hmm. where she, you know, she drives away with the kid and there's flowers springing up because she's harnessing his power in a good way. Kind of implies that with the right parenting or mentoring, any child could be a good child. I, I don't I guess that's the message. Whereas, man, I had that in my head and it really surprised me when I was watching the episode of the show and Rod Sterling just pops up suddenly and goes, well, that was f- terrifying, huh? <laughs> We don't have an ending for you. That's just how this is for these people. See you next week, faces. <laughs> I mean, it was like surprising. It really yeah. scared me. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I don't know if you knew this, but there was, there was a 2002 reboot of The Twilight Zone. I think Forrest Whitaker was the host. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. They yeah, made yeah. a sequel to this called it's, it's Still a Good Life, and it had Cloris Leachman in it and Billy Mummy in the sequel. It's 40 years later. Anthony's still in power. But he's an adult and he has a daughter. And she starts bringing things back from the cornfield. Oh, wow. She's that's got cool. her own power. So it might be something to check out. I wasn't aware of that till I was Wikipediaing this, if nice. that's a verb.
2: Well, I mean, we've talked to this story up. It's great. Highly recommend tracking it down and giving it a read.
1: Yeah, it's my favorite kind of short story. I, I sat out on the back patio it was a nice summer day and read this and just felt like I was a kid again. It, it just made me so happy to read this. I think it's an excellent example of a strange story. Yeah. Where they introduced this element and it's a, it's a scary self-contained monster in the house kind of thing all on its own. But it does make you say, "Oh wow, we're, in the real world we are captives of some pretty insane people mm-hmm. who were indulged when they were children and don't have an idea of what's good for us or not. And uh-huh. so yeah. even when they're trying to help can make things worse, it's just really hits.
2: I want to thank my son, Albert Lackey, for doing the reading here. Very good work, son.
1: It's super cool that he's on the show. I love it.
2: Yeah. Who would have thought when we started the show that I would have a child that would be on the show?
1: <laughs> you were getting sick of dealing with Andrew Lehman, I remember, and said, you know what? I'm going to make my own. going to make my own reader that I can control. <laughs> and it's finally manifested. The plan is working out. I play the long game. All just to spite Lehman. You know, I also want to thank our stakers. They make these free shows possible. And I'm going to start by thanking the king of all the snakes. I want to thank Crypto cryptographer. I want to thank Alistair Brooks. Hey, the twins. Thank you. I want to thank Andy Boss Coffee Garcia.
2: <laughs> Angelina Brown. Thank
1: you. Evan. Thank you so much. Eric Gordon. Thank you very much. I would like to thank Dr. Eric S. Vallone. And lastly, I'd like to thank Ben A. Thank you for making these free shows possible. We're going to be back next week with Miriam by Truman Capote. I believe this is another frightening child story. I haven't read it yet. That's all we've got. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris
2: Lackey. And you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories at Strangestudies.com
1: and Patreon.
0: Strange Studies of Strange Stories. (laughs)